Hey guys, Debs here, and welcome to another episode of Movies with Debs. Today, I'm going to be talking about Disney's live-action remake of Mulan. For those of you not familiar, Mulan is an ancient Chinese legend about a girl named Mulan who disguises herself as a man to take her ailing father's place in war. Her story of bravery and female empowerment has been made into many films and TV series, one of which is Disney's animated take on the legend in 1998. Fun fact, that version of Mulan was actually the first movie I ever saw in theaters, and I absolutely loved it. I actually remember getting on my rocking horse after seeing the movie and pretending that I was Mulan, going into battle to defeat the Huns. And I also remember when Santa asked me what I wanted for Christmas that year, I said, Mulan doll. So Disney's animated version of Mulan has a very special place in my heart. And I think it was because it was the first time that I saw someone who looked like me, who shared the same cultural heritage as me, and show me the kind of strong, badass Chinese woman I could become. So when Disney announced that it would be doing a live-action remake of Mulan, I was super excited. So excited that I kept following the news to stay on top of any new developments. But honestly, the more I learned about what was going on with the production, the more uneasy I became. And when I finally paid the $30 to see it on Disney+, Plus, yikes. It doesn't surprise me that, despite Mulan's raving reviews from critics, that audiences don't really like it. While it has a 75% certified fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, the audience rating is at a 51%. And Douban, which is China's version of Rotten Tomatoes, currently has this movie at a 4.7 out of 10 stars. <laughs> So there are already a ton of YouTube videos and social media threads out there about all the things wrong with the movie, so I'm not going to dive into that. But if you're interested in my quick take, imagine if Disney did an Aladdin remake with zero humor, no music, and no genie. That was the live-action Mulan. Hashtag, it was really bad. But again, you can find mountains of criticism on Mulan on the internet, so I'm not going to add to that or rehash any of that here. Instead, what I want to focus on is why the movie went so wrong. Honestly, the warning signs were there from the start, because to put it simply, Mulan is an example of the disaster that happens when business priorities take precedence over art. Disney wasn't genuinely interested in telling a good story about Mulan. They were more interested in its business potential. And so they let business drive all of their filmmaking decisions, which led to a massive train wreck. So in today's episode, I'll be taking you through the journey of how Mulan got to the big screen and how it reflects the age-old issue of art versus commerce in Hollywood and what happens when commerce wins. So first off, a bit of context by what I mean about art versus commerce. In Hollywood, there has always been a continuous struggle between art and profit. Artists want to tell a story, but executives think it won't sell the way it is, so they try to force the artist to make changes so that the movie can presumably become a box office hit. There are countless examples of this, like 
Lulu Wang, the director and writer of the film The Farewell. She said executives told her to add a prominent white character to her movie because a story with just Asian characters would never sell. She refused, and that's why her movie didn't get made until many years later on her terms, and it was a hit. There's also the example of the now-disgraced, but then very powerful Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein, who was actually nicknamed Harvey Scissorhands because he was notorious for wanting to cut many scenes out of the films he's produced, claiming that certain parts were too draggy, too boring, and would not do well with audiences. To be fair, I can't understand why certain Hollywood executives would be like that. After all, they're the ones pouring money into the productions, and they need to ensure they won't go bankrupt at the end of the day. But what they fail to recognize is that, more often than not, if you let art drive the filmmaking process, then business will follow. If you can just trust the artist to tell the story the way they envision it, more often than not, they're going to create something that's original, meaningful, authentic, and it's those things that will attract viewers in droves. Just like how Lulu Wang's The Farewell ended up being a huge success. Another example, Pixar. Pixar has an unparalleled track record when it comes to creating hits, but almost all of their movies would have certainly met resistance in a Hollywood boardroom. Like a clownfish looking for his lost son? A mouse that can cook? Who'd want to watch that? Well, apparently, everyone. If you have the time, I'd actually recommend you read the book Creativity, Inc., which is written by Ed Catmull, one of the founders of Pixar, because the book dives deep into their creative process. And you'll see that Pixar is driven by a genuine desire to tell a compelling story, and that's what guides their filmmaking, not profits. That's why they take longer pre-production processes than most films. And in fact, when Disney wanted to acquire them, Pixar was hesitant because they didn't want to lose their creative culture and be forced into Disney's corporate mindset. But Disney not only promised to let Pixar's culture stay as is, but also gave them huge influence over Disney's struggling animation unit. And what happened? Well, once Pixar entered the Disney family, under the influence and guidance of key Pixar creatives, Disney's animation unit entered a renaissance, releasing a string of original hit movies like Tangled, Wreck-It Ralph, Zootopia, and Frozen. So all of this goes to show that if you focus on the art, business will follow because the art component will bring in all the factors that audiences care about and look for in a movie. But if you do the reverse, you're gonna run into problems because whenever commerce becomes a driver, a movie is likely to feel manufactured, it's likely to be boring, and audiences just won't respond well. And that is what happened to Mulan. So shifting gears to Mulan, Disney first announced in 2010 that they'd be doing a live action remake. The project was stalled, it was put on hold, and it wasn't until 2015 that development restarted in earnest. Now that timing is very interesting. Why did Disney suddenly decide to pick things back up in 2015? My guess is that because by then, China had become a booming film market, the second largest film market in the world to be exact, with predictions that it would surpass the US to become number one in just a few years. So all of Hollywood was scrambling for a piece of this market. 
and no stronger evidence of its business potential could be seen than in the box office receipts for Hollywood films in China. Films that were successful in the U.S. became even bigger hits after premiering in China, like the wildly successful Furious 7, whose box office performance in China was more than what it made in the U.S. and Canada combined. Even movies that tanked in the U.S. found saving grace in the Middle Kingdom, like World of Warcraft. And I'm not going to blame you if you've never heard of it, because it was a huge flop in the U.S., only bringing in a measly $47 million. But in China, it made five times more at $221 million. Probably was the reason why this movie was fairly close to breaking even instead of being a huge financial loss. So naturally, Hollywood turned their attention to China. And that's probably why Disney thought it'd be a great idea to take Mulan, a beloved Chinese legend, and turn it into a live-action film to target this market. Also happening in the background at this time was preparations for the opening of Disneyland in Shanghai. So overall, Disney seemed very eager to deepen their ties with China because of its huge market potential, given the country's large population, thriving economy, and booming entertainment industry. So with this audience's revenue potential in mind, Disney began developing the script. And this would explain some of the major differences between the story for the live action versus the animated version. For one, the live action is much more serious because apparently based on Disney's market research, Chinese people would prefer a more serious take on Mulan. That's why there's none of the music from the original film. And that's also why Mushu, the beloved dragon, was eliminated. Specifically on Mushu, Disney conducted some research and learned that Chinese audiences were actually offended by that character because Chinese culture holds dragons in high regard. And Mushu, he was too much of a clown. Too bad because he was actually my favorite character. Another major change was the increased presence of martial arts in addition of supernatural elements. For example, the script was modified to include a martial arts master from Mulan and also a witch who is trying to sabotage her. This is very obviously an effort on Disney's part to infuse wuxia into the film. Wuxia is a film and TV genre in China that focuses on martial arts and sometimes blends in elements of fantasy, like sorceresses, fortune tellers, etc. And it's huge in China. Many of the most popular TV shows and movies there fall into this genre, and every year you can count on dozens of new shows and works to come out in this category. Some examples of wuxia that might be a bit more familiar to Western viewers include Ang Lee's Oscar-winning film Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and director Zhang Yimou's Hero. So it's no surprise that Disney tried modifying the live-action Mulan to fit this genre in in order to cater to Chinese audiences. However, even though Disney was doing what it could to satisfy Chinese audiences, they didn't want to alienate another important market of viewers, the Western viewers and fans of the animated original, who were already quite upset at this point to hear that the music and Mushu would not be in the live action. So Disney set out to find ways to appeal to this market of viewers. 
And this is where things got messy. Because when you try to make a movie for everyone, you usually end up with a movie for no one. Or in really bad cases, like this one, you offend everyone. For example, when the script was still in development, word got out that one iteration of the script had a white savior theme where a white man would help Mulan win the war and they'd fall in love. I think this was probably some Hollywood's executives move to cater to Western audiences because it's very similar to the situation that Lulu Wang encountered when making The Farewell. This caused an uproar on the internet, so thankfully, that iteration of the script was scrapped, but I think it captures the struggle Disney was having in creating a movie that would sell both at home and in Asia. You could also see the struggle in the casting. It was very obvious that they were trying to find Chinese celebrities who were known in the West to attract Western viewers, like casting Jet Li and Gong Li. But ironically, those two actors are way past their prime in China. I think Donnie Yen might be the only actor in this film who is known in both the West and is still currently popular in China. But of all the different casting that happened, the one that confused me the most was when Disney casted Crystal Liu as Mulan. Now, Crystal is unknown to most Western viewers, and in China, she's decently popular, but she has a reputation for being a terrible actress. In fact, many Chinese viewers have noted that in her previous works, she only ever seems to have one expression on her face. So that's why I was very puzzled when Disney casted her. And my guess is that there was probably some business politics going on in the background, and she was probably put forth as a recommendation from the Chinese figures involved in making this film. And my suspicion only grew stronger when she voiced her support for the Hong Kong police during the protests, which put Mulan in hot water and started the whole hashtag boycott Mulan trend on social media. So the casting was quite bizarre. It felt as if the actors made the cut based on business benefits, like the different audience segments they could bring in, but it's questionable if they were actually the right fit for the role. And the director? Oh boy, that was a whole other drama. For the director, Disney initially sought Asian directors that would be big name draws for Chinese audiences, like Taiwanese director Ang Lee, who declined because of timing conflicts, and Chinese director Jiang Wen, which, side note, was kind of surprising to me because his filmmaking style isn't exactly family-friendly. But he did have a role in Star Wars, and he's a huge name in China, so there would be a lot of marketing potential with his brand. But ultimately, Disney hired Nikki Caro, a white woman, as the director. And they positioned this as a huge win for female empowerment because Nikki would be the second female director ever to helm a big-budget Disney film. The first was Ava Dorvenet with A Wrinkle in Time. While some people were excited by this news, Chinese people varied from lukewarm to outraged by the fact that a white person would be telling a very important story from their culture. It also didn't help that the entire script writing team for Mulan was also white. Personally, I don't have a major issue with a non-Chinese person directing Mulan if they do it right and respectfully. And unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the case here. Because when the trailer came out, many Chinese people 
were furious at all the historical inaccuracies within the film. While most Western viewers found the cinematography in the trailer to be stunning and beautiful and they got really excited for Mulan, Chinese people, on the other hand, felt very disrespected with all of the historical inaccuracies, like the architecture in the film. In the movie, Mulan lives in a dome-shaped house that is characteristic to southern China, but legend says Mulan is from northern China. So Chinese netizens call this out as an attempt by the filmmakers to pander to Western tastes by including things that look exotic or oriental, and they never really gave much thought to the accuracy of it all. But another thing that really bothered me about the director pick was just how fast everything happened. It was as if Disney was in a mad rush to get this movie made, because according to the news, the first person they approached for directing was Ang Lee. And that happened around late fall 2016. And then when they finally announced Nikki as the director, it was February 2017. So only a few months had passed by. And I wonder why they moved so quickly on selecting the director, because I don't think it was a smart move for many reasons to make Nikki the director. And also, this is a bit of my personal bias speaking, but I do think Ang Lee would have been a great pick. And he also seemed interested in directing the film, but the only blocker was his schedule. So why couldn't Disney wait or try to work around it? After all, it seems like he was their first pick too because they approached him first. My guess is that Disney was probably worried about the costs that would accumulate from a more drawn out production process. And they also probably wanted to capitalize on the revenue potential of the Chinese market sooner rather than later. So it seems as if business considerations, once again, were pushing Disney to hastily make their decisions to keep the production going. So ironically, in an attempt to try to get everyone to come see this film and to insert different things that would appeal to different audiences, Disney somehow managed to rub everyone the wrong way. The script was supposed to appeal to Chinese viewers by being more serious and having wuxia elements, but that toned down the magic for fans of the original. So to compensate for that, they tried to cast big names and make the film visually appealing, only to anger Chinese audiences with historical inaccuracies. The directing and writing picks were also controversial, and so the resulting movie? It felt like an awkward patchwork of different fabrics that just did not mesh together at all. For example, the movie's tone was incredibly serious, but it was occasionally interrupted by these awkward one-line jokes or sudden references to song lyrics from the animated version. And I think that was supposed to make everyone chuckle, like, haha, I get it, haha, that's very funny. But in reality, it was actually very cringeworthy. The characters also fell flat, their relationships with each other tenuous at best, which made some of the plot developments quite unbelievable. I also did not like the attempt to bring in wuxia elements, especially the addition of the sorceress and all these random one-line references to chi, which felt super fake to the point that it was rude. Like, you could tell whoever wrote that part of the story has a very shallow understanding of wuxia and is just throwing random terms around to sound like an expert. You can probably fool some Western audiences with that, but for Chinese viewers, even the small-scale TV films and movies in China do much better than that. Mulan felt like a fusion dish gone wrong because the chef, Disney, was never motivated 
by simply creating a delicious dish. Instead, they were focused on bringing in business. So they threw in every ingredient they could think of that would appeal to Western or Chinese taste palates, and they never once considered if these ingredients should even go together. Just give them a reason to eat the dish was the mantra, not let's make this dish delicious. And so that's why Mulan turned out to be the strange, unappetizing patchwork of a movie it is, and I'm not the least bit surprised. It is unfortunate, though, because I do think the concept of a live-action Mulan could have had so much potential if it was done with the right motivations. I was so sad after watching the movie that for a second I thought about starting a petition to remake Mulan, because she deserves so much better than this. But honestly, Disney isn't alone when it comes to putting business over art. Many other Hollywood studios also share the same corporate mindset. And part of it is because they rely so heavily on box office returns for their revenue. If they flop at the box office or do less than ideal, it's going to be hard for them to make back those costs through other channels. So studios become risk averse, and they're more likely to want to modify films to make them more sellable. And what exactly is sellable? Well, it varies from executive to executive, but whatever it is, it usually kills the beauty of a film and creates a disaster. Now, quick clarification here. I am not suggesting that studios should completely turn a blind eye to money. That's naive. I know they're running a business. So if a story sounds terrible, and I mean objectively terrible, like the logic is out of whack, the characters are stupid, then by all means, don't greenlight it, don't make it. But if a story has potential, and the only thing holding you back is because you've never seen anything like it, so you're not sure how it might perform at the box office, then take a risk. Trust in the storyteller, and you might just be pleasantly surprised. Don't let those money concerns make you warp this potentially great story into something artificial, mundane, or awkward. I like to point to La La Land when people ask me about an example of art versus commerce, because La La Land actually had a challenging time getting greenlit, because executives said that musicals historically performed poorly at the box office, the movie didn't feature any familiar songs, and it was focused on jazz, a musical genre that is considered by many to be going extinct. In fact, some business executives even told Damien Chazelle, the director and writer for La La Land, to change the male lead into a rock musician and to also change the film's now famous bittersweet ending. He refused, so it took a few years before his movie was finally made. But look at the massive hit it became when he was given the space and freedom to realize his artistic vision. There was an authenticity to the film that resonated with viewers and one that would have been completely killed off if business took the reins for this movie. So when will Hollywood studios learn to let go of that corporate mindset and embrace art more, especially when good art can lead to the business results they desired in the first place? I don't know. And on that note, thanks for tuning in to today's episode where I talked about Mulan, why it went wrong, and how it reflects the bigger and still ongoing struggle between art and commerce in Hollywood. Have you watched Mulan? What are your thoughts on art versus business in Hollywood? Let me know by connecting with me on social. You can find me on Instagram at the handle Debs underscore speaking. Thanks for tuning in.
I'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.